Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I know we took a couple of weeks off because we've been busy recording. We have so many great episodes for y'all. So many great episodes coming. We're excited about it. We're excited to be able to record, get out there, meet some great folks, get some great interviews for you. Now, before we get to this interview, Judy Reagan, by the way, amazing. A couple announcements up top. November 22nd. Howling Wolf, Emma Willman. You may know her as Valencia's girlfriend in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. You might know her because you've seen her on national television. You ever heard of Jimmy Fallon? Yeah, she's been on his show doing some stand-up. She's a fantastic stand-up, and she's in town in New Orleans, November 22nd, 8 o'clock show over at Howling Wolf. I, Amanda G., will be opening for her. So honored to be a part of that show. So if you're in New Orleans, if you know people in New Orleans, check it out. Let folks know about it. Now, before we get to this episode, uh, between when we recorded this episode and when we're putting this episode out, Judy Reagan's father, who we do talk about in the episode, passed away. So we just wanted to send our wishes and thoughts to the Reagan family uh, during this time. And we appreciate everything that he's done and all the lives that he's touched. So to the episode, we have Judy Reagan. She is a stand-up. She does improv. She is a singer-songwriter. She was part of the second wave of feminism. She has done so many great, awesome things in her life, and we're so excited that she sat down with us just to talk about it, just to remind us about how far we've come, where we need to go, get a different perspective on things. So excited to have her. So let's give it up for Judy Reagan. And just a note, after the episode, we do have a a clip of one of her songs uh, that she wrote for her album, and we'll throw some pictures up on social media. Uh, but in the meantime, here's Judy Reagan. I'm here with Judy Reagan, who Hello. is has been a Queer Mountain storyteller, mm-hmm. a stand-up comic, musician, many other things, I'm sure, that yeah. I don't know about. And Improviser. We'll out. Improviser. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did know that. I've seen you do improv. Right. You're in an improv troupe, right? Yes. What are, uh, what are you it's called Foxhole. Foxhole. Uh, yeah, it's uh, five women. And uh, we do shows. I think our next show is in November. We're going to do the show at Parlo. Parlo Brew Yeah. Good, good spot. Yeah. So you're not from New Orleans, are you? Not originally. I tell people I got here as soon as I could. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Washington, D.C. You're okay. Yep. Worked my way south starting at about age, uh, age 35. And uh, I'm 60. I just had a birthday, so I, let's say I'm 68 now. Congratulations. And, uh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, every day is year. a good day, right? Yeah. Um, I used to say I was somewhere between 60 and death, but that, you know. That could get, see, I like morbid jokes. I, 
I grew up with the kind of family that like laughs at a funeral kind of like just that's how we deal with life. So I I find those jokes funny, mm-hmm. but other people find them sometimes off-putting where they're just like, whoa. And I'm like, this, look, it's a fact, right? right? It's a fact. It's funny. It's an observation I pointed out. Yeah. I enjoy this. And that one, I stole that one from Mame. That was one of the lines from, from Mame. I think she, yeah. Mrs. Gooch, Miss Gooch said she was somewhere between 45 and death, I think. <laughs> so I had to keep pushing it up. Yeah. Of course. You got to adjust yeah. your jokes. That's right. That's right. So until you were 35, you were in D.C.? Mm-hmm. Were you in D.C., D.C., or were you pretty much like Virginia, but yeah. she like called it D.C.? Right. If you, if you were gay in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, you lived all around D.C. Sometimes I was right in the city. That's the last place I lived was right in the city. And then you're in Arlington or you're over in the Maryland side. My first career was as a public school teacher. And I lived in Washington, and I taught in a little tiny town in Virginia about 60 miles south. And... Did that for five years, and then discovered that I was gay. Came out, and that wasn't going to work as a public school teacher in Virginia. Were there like actual rules about that? Oh, or was absolutely. It, okay. Yeah. In fact, or was uh, it just like an assumed? Like, no. Okay. No, it was like if I had been out gay in that county, I I wouldn't have been able to keep my job. Well, this was public school. Yeah, public wow. school. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that it's any different now. Actually, Amanda. Really? Uh, yeah. It, there's still so many places in this country where if you are an out homosexual, you, you can be fired. So then I decided I went to my first gay pride festival in D.C. And it was about, oh, I guess, 78, 79. Can I ask how old you were then? Oh, I'm sorry. I, say, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm not good at arithmetic. What would I have been? I was in my 20s. And I saw Holly Near sing. And that my mind exploded because I had always been interested in music and performing even as a kid. My, my first role was as Smokey the Bear in a Girl Scout play. <laughs> and you turned out to be the lesbian. Right, yeah, and I turned out to be a surprise. <laughs> but I heard Holly Near sing and it was like, oh my gosh, here's a way to combine your music with your politics. What a great thing. And so I started writing my own music and performing as a lesbian feminist singer-songwriter. Great career path. <laughs> it's <laughs> like being money. a stand-up yeah. comic, right? All those big studios are just yeah, knocking, yeah, down, knocking the down the doors. But I did, I was able to, you know. Sure, you were hot some... on the protest circuit, I mean. Yeah, yeah, and I would open for people like Meg Christian, who, who probably some of your listeners will recognize that name. Some of the more well-known lesbian feminist singers because that became in the 70s and 80s a real kind of outgrowth of the second wave of feminism the the idea that the songs and the record label like olivia records were established to promote those artists maxine feldman who was an amazing singer songwriter and one of the first to really have a song that that spread among the lesbian community lesbian and gay community she was from boston and she kind of took me under her wing some and uh, help me get on stages at the music festivals and things like that. So I did that, recorded an album, produced it myself, and that was 82, I guess. And, you know, travel, and it's like stand-up comedy, comedy sort of, is to travel on your own dime. You yeah. Know? And <laughs> somebody may, you know, pay you something to perform at their space, but, you know, and maybe you can stay in somebody's spare room or on the couch, that type of thing. So I did that for a number of years and realized I wasn't going to make any money. 
and went back to one of those schools uh, that you see on the matchbook, you know, earn big money, mm. learn computers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did that, and that has been kind of my go-to profession in the ensuing years. Whenever things got really tight money-wise, I'd find a computer job somewhere. What do you do with computers? I Programming. Oh, wow. You can do programming? Yeah, yeah. I'm not shocked you particularly can do it. I just, I'm always shocked when people can do that stuff because I, you know, I, computer programming is everyone's like, that's where the money is. And especially with the way technology has grown with the internet and Mm -hmm. apps and phones and whatever. And I'm just like, I don't know how y'all learn that. It's, well, I'm. All the computer, all the IT people listening to this are going to be gassed, but it's really not that hard. <laughs> Y'all just make it seem that Yeah, way. it's a, the mystique, you know. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> right. Uh, you don't have the proper training. It's very uh, systematic. If, you've gotta, if you can think your way from point A to point Z, it's pretty straightforward. Basically talking to a machine that knows zero and one. So Is it fun for you? Oh, yeah. Gonna... It's kind of like, for me, it was kind of like crossword puzzle. Yeah. Type of thing. I enjoyed it. I always enjoyed it. And like you say, it's where where the money is. I could almost always get a job if I needed one. And then that, when we came to New Orleans, my partner and I, Alice, from, uh, well, I had come from D.C. to around the Atlanta area. And that's where I met Alice a number of years, I guess, 20 years ago. And then we wound up coming down to New Orleans, which I'll put in a plug for this wonderful city. It is the least ageist place I've ever been. People are welcoming to you if you're, you know, you go to a party and there'll be six-year-olds and 76-year-olds or 86-year-olds. There's not that, oh, if you're this age, you have to be with this group of people. Or if you're this age, you have to be with that group of people. I have friends that are 21. I have friends that are 75. And it's not weird Mm -hmm. at all for anybody to just be, everyone just wants to have a good time. Right. And I like where I'm from in Los Angeles. I feel like I feel like when I was in my 20s, if I was at a bar and someone like looked 40 or over, we would be like, "Ew, what are you doing in our bar?" And it's like, "This is a bar." And it's like, "What are you hit 40 and you just die?" Mm-hmm. Now that I'm getting closer to that age myself, I'm like, "I'm still fun. I still want to go out past 10 o'clock. Like sure. it's you know." But here it's it's totally normal. You know, it's just whoever wants to hang out, and everyone seems for the most part very chill and cool and laid back and. We can all just go out and have a good time, and it's not uh, about what brands we're wearing or uh, a hookup culture or this. It's just like, hey, let's listen to some music, let's watch some football or whatever people are into, and let's have a couple beers. Absolutely. And it's so refreshing because, well, I haven't been, obviously, in every city in the uh, United States, but in the ones I've been in, and I've been in a lot of them, New Orleans is unique. Oh, I love it. I think Jane Banks has me beat, beat mm-hmm. on the local comedy scene for the elder stateswoman of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> but here's this. So Jane Banks, we'll give a shout out to her because I love her so much. Mm-hmm. She had her 70th birthday party at a bar, Lucky's, a bar oh. called Lucky's. She had so her 70th birthday. She has at a bar called Lucky's where her husband plays music, where people are doing comedy and where there's a crawfish boil. Perfect. Yeah. And everybody there, they made her cake. Like, there was cheers. She was doing shots. Mm-hmm. It's like, what a great 70th birthday. I hope that if I make it, when I make it, I'll say when I make it there to 70, go. that, you know, I have the same exact party. That was, it was just so amazing. And that's, and there was people of all ages, whatever, out to, to see her and hang out and just mm-hmm. celebrate her. And she was, she was wasted. <laughs> but it was, it was a lot of fun. Well, that's great. Well, I, I think maybe I've got the, I know Jane... Jane's a couple years ahead of me, but maybe I've, I'm the elder stateswoman of lesbian humor. <laughs> I don't know. But Lee is 
Lee Glass is behind me, so I know I'm yeah. older than Lee, so maybe I've got the title for that. We can know. just declare it right now. <laughs> All right, I just, uh, Let's I'm the oldest else. lesbian comic, the oldest dyke comic <laughs> in New Orleans. Let someone fight you about yeah, it. Yeah, right, right. Or what, we'll have a collective meeting and reason together <laughs> about it. Either that or a sing-off. Right, oh, there we go. Yeah, I'll yeah. challenge anybody yeah. to sing-off. Yeah, folk sing-off. A folk sing-off, yeah. It's one of the dumbest jokes, but I used to get a kick out of it, was uh, how many lesbians does it take to change a light bulb? And it's uh, one to change the light bulb and one to write a folk song about it. <laughs> and it's like kind of dumb, but it's kind of true. Kind of true, yeah. That's the best jokes are always have that ring of truth in them. Yeah, but before you, you hit the music, you were mm-hmm. playing music your whole life? Is that Pretty much. In elementary school, I took a crack at the violin, which was pretty horrible. Then in sixth grade, I think it was, I decided I wanted to play the guitar. So I saved it. My dad, after the violin debacle was like, you want a guitar, you buy it. So I saved up and I had $15 and I got a Sears Silvertone from the catalog. And it was a big deal in the neighborhood the day my mom took me over to pick it up from the catalog store. And it turned out to be my instrument. And so my first public appearance was in the seventh grade talent show. And me and another woman who actually we have reconnected on Facebook, we sang Love Potion Number no. 9 <laughs> with our guitars. And I was hooked from that point on. So I did a lot of folk covers. And then in the uh, late 70s, when I found out I could write songs about what was concerning to me, that was life-changing for me. That's when I did, did that. And like I said, the album, it's called Old Friends. It's still floating around in places. <laughs> it's vinyl because at the time people said, oh, this CD thing and tapes, that's that's just a, a phase. Vinyl is the way to go. And it turns out vinyl has come back around yeah. too. You know, I guess that's if you wait People long wish they would have kept all their old vinyls. Right. And uh, they were a collection of songs about my personal experience with being gay. And it was just great. I loved it. But... I didn't make a living off it. Were you selling it yourself or was yeah, it in record and, stores? And was it was it... in some independent, um, because at that point there were places like uh, Labris Books in D.C., which was a women's bookstore and record store. So some of those around the country would sell it. And then I sold it myself personally at, at events and stuff. But it was it was a great experience. I worked with a wonderful pianist, a woman named Barbara Lee, who... Uh, did the arrangements for me for the songs and brought in friends who did backup vocals and stuff. It was a, it was a great experience. Are you going to put out another album in the future? <laughs> well, never say never, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't done as much music. When I first came to New Orleans, of course, this is a music city, I learned how to play banjo because the jazz bands were interested in that, and I worked with a group called Some Like It Hot and then formed my own trio, and this was just before Katrina, and we were getting gigs, and then we were recording an album of jazz standards, and Katrina hit, and everything kind of blew up. So it's been a while since I've done music regularly. I kind of segued over into the comedy instead, the improv, and as you know, taking a crack at some stand-up, which is so much fun, and at the same time, one of the most frightening things <laughs> that you can do on the planet, I think. Especially, you know, we go to a lot of open mics, mm-hmm. like let's say 12 Mile Limit open mic. They have an average of 20 to 30 people sign up and not everybody's going to be great. But I, you know, even if somebody's terrible, I just try to remind people and they're like, oh, that person sucked. And it's like, they still got up there. You know, they still wrote some stuff, practiced it and got up there and tried. Maybe they didn't get it right this time or it just, maybe it was right and just wasn't right for you. But like they 
tried, you know, and I was like, you can get up there and do it. And I no, I would never do that. Okay. Yeah, it absolutely. It's some people say, I have such terrible stage fright. I could never get up in front of people. And it is, I don't know whether it's, we're all deep down hams (laughs) Uh, (laughs) or sometimes I found for myself, especially when I was doing music performance, it was a lot easier for me to sing in front of a crowd of, you know, 50, a hundred thousand people than to sit in a room with two people and sing. I think that stage, the microphone, gives you a little bit of dis. it gives me, I'll say, a little bit of distance, a little bit of cushion, maybe, yeah. or, or, you know, that in a face-to-face conversation, I imagine you get it a lot. Say, tell me something funny. Say, say something funny. Oh, yeah, you do comedy? Tell me a joke. And I, I'll do it, because I mm-hmm. think it makes them feel more uncomfortable mm-hmm. than it does me. Because <laughs> I'm like, I know this joke's funny, but now you have you have to laugh at it or you're an asshole. Like, because it's just me and you. And it's like, tell me something funny. Okay. And then I'll just tell them a joke the same way I tell it on stage. And I know a lot of other comics do. I hate that. And I'm like, no, <laughs> trust me, it's worth the look on their face when they're like, okay, I have to laugh at Because sometimes they'll laugh before I even get to the punchline. And it's like, I I know what you know. It's like, well, you did this to yourself. But I think with music, too, you're not as dependent on the audience. Like, you can go up there, you play your song. You're not like, and punchline. And silence, you know. It's like you're going to play your song and get applause and less pressure for the audience interaction in that case. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) My friend Maxine Feldman used to say, you know, because she had a friend, Robin Tyler, who was a a lesbian stand-up comic. She did, recorded a couple albums. You might still be able to find some of her work online. She's still around. She predates like Kate Clinton and Robin. She would say Robin would say, "Okay, singers can get up and say, okay, this is this is my song about X, Y, or Z, and here it is, and then play the song." She said, if, "As a comic, I can't get up there and say, okay, this is my joke about blah blah blah, and then say the joke. You just have to get up there and do yeah. it. Because if you explain too much." takes away from the joke and then there or you build up too much expectation or anticipation and it kind of can fall apart it's all it's a very delicate art and i am obviously very fascinated by it but i like to see two people that do different like you do music and improv and you can see the different art forms and the the way that you know stand-up is a little more intricate than people think it is (laughs) absolutely it the best with, I guess, any art, the best people make it look so easy. Oh, yeah. The ones who are the best at it. But uh, figuring, out, figuring out a joke set is a lot like figuring out a music set. You know, the, the swell, you know, start off and then you're kind of, I always think of it as kind of a bell curve that, you know, you start off slow and then you have your big event, your big jokes, and then maybe a, a quick finish you know like you would when you were doing a musical set you know something like that but it it is definitely an art when I've watched local people here people like you the memorable things that are said I was quoting you the other day about uh, your happy hour joke which I think is one of the funniest that I've heard because I was somewhere and people were saying oh no they don't have a happy hour here and I said oh they don't have a happy hour. well let me tell you my, my friend Amanda G when she t- that means it's just 24 sad hours that's what she said and everybody was like oh that's great I was yeah I was in Indianapolis and I was just like at the bar and I was like what's your happy hour and they're like it's illegal and I was like I'm sorry what do you mean happy hour is illegal they're like we know well, what they do there instead, I didn't tell us in the joke because it's not as fun, but they have an all-day special. Oh. So they're allowed to have an all-day special, but they're not allowed to have a happy hour. <laughs> so Wednesdays they had like an all-day. So that's the thing, too. That their special was $16 growlers, and growlers are these 64-ounce jugs, these glass jugs that you can carry with you. 
Really? So I was you like, mean carry outside? Yeah, you could take it home. Like, so I was just like, I don't understand why this is okay, but happy hour somehow got cut down. But they were saying that the religious folks think that if you have a happy hour, then people are going to get way too drunk in that hour or two hours of time where the drinks are cheap. Ah. But you can do an empirical study of literally everywhere else in the world, and that's not the case. <laughs> Our country had prohibition at one point. Oh, yeah. There's some crazy alcohol laws on the books, and some of them are still lingering around. I mean, Tennessee, there's still dry counties and places where whiskey is their main income source. (laughs) So it's just, it's so fascinating to me. But yeah, I like that, you know, I like when there's something universal like that that can really, you know, reach out to folks. So you and Alice have been together for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Y'all are super cute and adorable. And... Um, That's something I have learned, Amanda, <laughs> that when you get to a certain age, people start calling you cute and adorable. I need to work that into something. Yeah, because right? uh-huh. like, I am at 36, no longer cute and adorable. <laughs> It'll come back around. <laughs> now I'm starting to get the man thing on a regular uh, basis, and yeah. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, just hang in there. Yeah. Cute and adorable is in your future. <laughs> I, I didn't mind being called. In my 20s, I was cute and adorable because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm short, and I used to probably pay more attention to how I dressed, and, and now it's like I'm just there. <laughs> So I'm glad that's something to look forward to. I mean, you're cute and adorable as a couple. Like, I see you guys, mm-hmm. I see y'all interact. Not, I'm not a creeper at the bar, but, I, you know, I see mm-hmm. you guys out, out and about at shows and this and that. And I just, you guys look like you actually enjoy each other's company, number one. And you look like you love each other and care for each mm-hmm. other. And you can see that just radiating off of y'all. Oh, so nice. I wanted to ask, how did you meet? Uh, we met in theater. Alice was directing a show, and I, I was in it. And... We just clicked. She's a tremendously talented person. Theatrical actress. She went back to school at 40. She has a very interesting history in theater. She's a wonderful director, wonderful coach for dramatics. She also writes. She's done a couple of the the moth storytelling things. She raised four sons, and one passed away. I guess it's been about 20 years Uh, very unexpectedly, but one of her sons lives here in New Orleans, and the other two are in the Atlanta area. Everyone in the family is creative and interesting in their own way, and she, uh, we just, I think we click because she's very supportive of my art. I'm very supportive of hers. She's my most perspicacious critic. I'll put it that way. I don't know Six, that word. Okay. Uh, um, I was like, I hope someone yeah. else out there also doesn't know that word. I was like, she's, that sounds like a good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing. It's She's very... Well, say she it again. Know, perspicacious. She perspicacious. knows. Got it. She knows what works theatrically. She knows what works with an audience. She knows stage presence. She knows all of those things that go across any art form, any performance art form. Um, how to present something to an audience. How, what kind of reaction you're getting. So, if she, when she comes and listens to a set or comedy set or an improv set, we'll talk about, we'll kind of debrief later. And I know I can trust her opinion on what worked, what didn't work, and most especially why it didn't work or why she thinks it didn't work. And that's so valuable to have. Someone who will tell you the truth as they see it, not, you know, not blow smoke, and also in a supportive way. It's not like, oh, you were terrible, <laughs> or oh, you were great. <laughs> it's like, this worked, that didn't work, this, you might want to think about this, or, you know, things like that. And with her theatrical performance background, it's we're a good match on that. You need a partner and a fan. You need them to be a fan of you, but not just a fan of you. You don't need that yes person that's like, oh, everything you do is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every joke you tell, it's like, I want to get better, and you know me better than anybody else. And 
you know, you could be part of that process and we can really help uplift each other. But if we're just like, oh, that was great. You don't need to change anything ever. And then not actually, you know, then you're not being truthful to your, you know, she wouldn't be truthful to herself and it wouldn't help you out. But you also have to be, or the other person has to be able to handle criticism. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that could be a problem where it's like, and it's not, it's like constructive criticism. It's Mm -hmm. not negative. It's just like, hey, maybe try this instead of this. Maybe cut this part out. Maybe there's more here to develop, you know, whatever helpful thing it is. And the other person has to be able to receive that. Exactly. Or else it won't work. Yeah. So y'all met in like the Atlanta area. Right. Uh Uh-huh. And then what made you decide to come to New Orleans? Um, Well, her son, Alice's son, Todd Schaefer, who's a teacher here in new orleans he works with young audiences and community works he's he's an artist an amazing artist and works to bring art to public schools and he came down here and said this is the greatest place in the world you'll need to think about it and we were working on uh, putting together a theater in atlanta and then alice's son died so unexpectedly and it just it got hard to stay there so todd said come on down here come to new orleans you'll love it it both creative types. This is a place you'll blossom. So we said, okay, <laughs> we will. We came down to visit in August, probably the worst time of year to visit New Orleans, and still fell in love with it. And this was 1999, and uh, we've been here ever since. Katrina, you know, we got flooded out. And we went back up to Atlanta for a while, but it was like, no, New Orleans is home. We've got to come back down here. How long um, did it take y'all to get back? We got back, I think, in October. Late yeah. August 2005 mm-hmm. is when Katrina happened. Right. So you were back pretty quickly. So. We were. We were lucky because we had, Alice had an apartment at that point that she had been renting that was all electric. Because if you remember, we couldn't get gas. Yeah. So we were living high on the hog. People would come to our place to have showers and stuff because mm-hmm. we had hot water. And So we got back quicker than a lot of people. And then we, we decided, Alice and her son Todd and I, that we would do our part to help bring back New Orleans and open a restaurant. And we thought the West Bank was essentially, the West Bank of New Orleans across the river, was essentially a suburb. And it's a very different little town over there in Gretna. But we wound up in Gretna and we opened Easy Dogs, which was a hot dog restaurant. Because we thought Chicago has famous hot dogs, New York has famous hot dogs, New Orleans needs a famous hot dog. Alice developed all these wonderful recipes, Easy Sauce, and, and we had categories of our hot dogs. You could get a category one, which was just the basic hot dog with the sauce. And each category, we added another level of stuff till you got to a category five. And we lasted two years because probably the only thing harder than performance is running a restaurant. (laughs) It was successful. The year, the month we closed, New Orleans Magazine said we had the best hot dog in New Orleans, but we were exhausted. We just couldn't keep it going. And so we closed it. I went back, got a programming job, and we just said, okay, we've done our bit, but this is all we can do. Well, what made you make that decision versus selling it or Uh, maybe? uh, We sold the building, but this was kind of before the hot dog renaissance here in New Orleans, like that dog. And this was just within, I guess, two years of of Katrina. So that would have been, what, about 2007? Yeah. And it just, uh, we were just exhausted. And it was too much of a, I think for one thing we've talked about, we were probably too old at that time to get into it. And it's just really a difficult, difficult business. And those people listening who are in the food service business know (laughs) what I'm talking about. You work, you know, 20 hours a day and you're lucky if you make any kind of profit. Many good things about it. Met a lot of 
fabulous people, interesting people. Uh, learned a lot about food and, and what it takes to run a restaurant. I tip much better now than I ever did before. <laughs> but it, it just was, we didn't have enough experience going into it either. And uh, some things you can kind of learn as you go and some things you better know what you're doing before you get into it. Yeah, because I used to, and it's still a, a dream of mine, but as I think about it more realistically, it's probably not something I could actually do, but mm-hmm. I wanted to retire and buy a bar because I just love hanging out at bars, so why not hang out at my own bar? Um, and I had a whole plan for it, and everyone loved my plan, but then it's like, you know, they're like, you're not going to see profits for five years. And I was like, yeah, probably, I understand that, but that's part of, you know, what yeah. you put into it. But then now I'm kind of like, but I like the bars I go to. And then if I had my own bar, I'd be competing with all the wonderful people that I already know and love. So I don't know what I want to do in the future, but I'll, I'll figure it out. All right. So you guys did the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And then after that. Back when- to work. I was working in the IT professions and then doing music on the side. And then I got involved in the improv scene and comedy. And then I retired from a day-to-day job two years ago so it's wonderful now I have time to do all the things I want to do all the fun things and it seems like just from our conversation and maybe this isn't the case that both of your families seem very open and are you guys both out to your respective families and has that been a rough journey to get where you are or is it ever easy is, <laughs> is it ever easy for well is any family ever easy because on any period Alice's family has been very supportive my family uh, not so much. When I first came out back in D.C., my parents, especially my mother, was horrified. And it happened in a big way. I was asked to MC the Gay Pride Festival. Mm. And back at that point, this was you know early 80s, there were two newspapers in Washington. There was the Post that came out in the morning and the Star, the Evening Star. And after the Gay Pride Day... The next evening, the Evening Star had a picture of me standing on the stage in front of this enormous banner that said, you know, D.C. Gay Pride Festival. And my mother was horrified. And it took a lot of time. You know, they're from a very different generation. My parents are, are the World War II generation, you know, the, born in the tw- late middle 20s. So it was a much longer process for them. My extended family, we have very different political views, but they're very welcoming to Alice and me. So I guess a lot of families perhaps do that division of, we won't necessarily talk about your personal life, but we love you and we won't talk politics and or religion <laughs> or anything like that. I think probably for my generation, it, it was pretty typical. My grandmother was a huge supporter of me no matter what I did. This was my father's mother. And she was one of the reasons why I stayed in Washington as long as I did. As long as she was still alive, I would visit with her regularly. So I think probably she was one of the biggest formative influences on my life. And her whole persona was accepting and loving people. And I think that really helped me. She was also very musical, too. Oh. Uh, my whole, that side of my family, my father's family was all very musical so I think it if there's a genetic component it came down on that side but uh yeah and now you know we travel together we visit family together everyone includes us and then the younger members of the family refer to for example my nieces talk about their two aunts Aunt Judy and Aunt Alice which is nice yeah it's fantastic 
I guess that's the the version of you that I know. Yeah. It's just, yeah. you know, you got that and that's another thing too. I think it's so important for, you know, anyone else in your family if they're queer identified to mm-hmm. have like real queer yeah. role models who are living their lives out and proud mm-hmm. and can let them know like, hey, this is a, something that you can do and be happy right. in and not, you know, yeah. have to live in a in the closet or the metaphorical closet, which right. I feel like we need a new thing for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to work on that. But. I used to have this joke that was like, it shouldn't be coming out of the closet. It should be like coming out of the dugout. That works. Lesbian softball joke. Yeah, oh, right. Just, yeah. Oh, I had know. a song about uh, Yeah. You'll have to look it up online. I will. About <laughs> softball. We'll also, uh, we'll probably post a picture of your record on oh, sure. social media. I know you brought it to one of the Queer Mountains. And I yeah. Like, I love right. this. <laughs> how did, how was your dad? Oh, uh, my, like I said, my, I, I may have mentioned this before we started recording. My parents are very elderly. Uh, I'm lucky to still have him around. My dad has uh, advanced dementia, and my mother is still very sharp. So I visit there in Huntsville, and a lot of my extended family's up there. So we visit, and uh, my dad's hanging in. You know, it's it's one of those things. And they talk about sometimes the sandwich generation, where you've got people. You know, I don't have any children, but Alice has children and grandchildren, and then also. I have parents that we try to take care of and make sure are okay, and and you're kind of stuck. You're the meat in the sandwich, sort of, that pulled yeah. in two different <laughs> ways, and it's uh, interesting and demanding. But uh, it also has given me lots to think about in terms of preparing for my own future and what you can do as as a before you get to a point where you need help and assistance. You know what things you can do to try to keep yourself in better shape. One of my jokes is that I've got 35 years of sobriety, but it's the first 35, (laughs) which is a joke. It's actually been the most recent 35. So trying to keep myself healthier because I I really know. And that's one thing I think a lot of, especially my generation of lesbians, but I think it's probably true now too, a lot of socialization and then you add comedy on it happens in bars and you know, you go to a bar, and it, now it's a lot easier to go to a bar and not drink alcohol. You're not, I've never had a bartender here in New Orleans say, oh my gosh, you're not, you know, you just want soda water, or you want a Diet Coke, or something, you know, oh gosh. They're very welcoming, very willing to have you in their space without you drinking your alcohol, and that's great, because at sometimes that has not been the case. That. And if you wanted to meet other lesbians or socialize in a safe environment, be able to dance, go to clubs that had dance, that was always a part of that was drinking a lot. And for those of us like me who have addictive personalities, that was a dangerous combination. My thing is I love drinking. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it. But because I do comedy, I am in those spaces more frequently than I would be if I didn't do comedy. Mm-hmm. And so I really have to balance that out and I have to on some nights just choose to have Diet Coke and yeah I've never had it no one's ever given me any shit for it which is great I usually just give them at least five dollars for one Diet Coke just to be like hey I know I'm in your space I know you want to make money on tips just here I'm this is not why I'm doing this I'm not trying to cheat my way out of things I'm like I'm just trying to exist in this space (laughs) and Um, I think like I said it's well I have been in some other places uh at bars now that are that's the case nobody's offended if you 
yeah. choose not to drink. And, and like you say, it really helps if you <laughs> give yeah. them a, a good tip for, <laughs> for something. Because so many times the bartender will want to give you a Coke or you know, yeah. soda water or something. And that, after my restaurant experience, it's like, no, I know you're, <laughs> I know why you're here, why you're working, and, and what kind of money you can expect as hard as you work. So absolutely, I'm going to tip you big. And how was it in the first few months or years of, of getting sober and being sober? It's it, funny. The, the first party I went to when I had stopped had admitted that I had a problem was probably as terrifying as the first stand-up because I went and I won because I thought what if nobody likes me when I'm sober (laughs) what if well that was it what if who am I when I go to a party if I haven't had anything to drink and I remembered that I took a bunch of ice cream and topping to this party and bowls and spoons and stuff because I figured then we can all eat ice cream. I can eat my weight in ice cream. I always still love ice cream. And that'll be something I can do instead of drink. And it turned out it was fine. Everybody's thrilled. You know, the people who were drinking and eating ice cream were having a, a ball, and I had a good time too, just eating a lot of ice cream. But it was, it was hard to, it was surprising to me to realize that I didn't know who I was when I wasn't pretty well lit, you know. And, uh, it was a good choice. It was an absolute necessity choice for me. And I, every now and then, I think, oh, gee, I wish, I wish I could, I see some new something, and I think, oh, I wonder what that tastes like. And it's like, well, you just die wondering. Because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not a good thing for me. And it's gotten much, much easier now to be a performer and be sober. 25, 35 years ago, it was harder because... If you were in a place that served alcohol, it was expected that you would drink it. And a lot of places would pay, when I would sing in bars especially, I wouldn't get paid, but I would get paid in drinks. They do that with comedy sometimes. Yeah, yeah exactly. So like you'll get some tip money and then they're mm-hmm. like, oh, you get two drinks, three right, drinks, four yeah. drinks at the bar. Yeah, but now it's it's not a big deal to say, okay, I'll take four Cokes or, yeah. you know, or two Cokes or whatever, Coca-Cola or, or Diet Coke or whatever. Because when you were first, you know, so you were, they had pride. And in D.C., how long had Pride been going on? It had not been going on too very long. The Washington Blade newspaper, the gay newspapers, is having its 50th anniversary this month, in fact. So so I wanted to ask, because uh, I think it, so by the time I came out, every city basically had one or less lesbian bars. Mm-hmm. A lot of cities now are losing them. Yeah. Uh, Louisville just lost their... I forgot what it's called. Of course, they all have really cute names, but they just lost mm-hmm. their lesbian bar. I know in San Francisco, the big famous, the Lex, the Lexington, mm-hmm. that's gone. New Orleans, since I've been here, we've had a bunch of iterations of different, we had Ruby Fruit Jungle and um, Club LAX and all these different places, and they're all gone now. But that used to be like the place where you would go to meet people, right? I mean, yeah. I'm asking this question weirdly, but like... Society was different back then. It wasn't just like you could just go out to any bar and talk to whoever and not have, you know, and not be fearful of that. So how did you, you know, meet other queer folks or how did you find queer spaces or create queer spaces? My first group that I joined actually was outside of D.C. It was called the Reston Gay Rap Group, RG Squared. And it was men and women. And Reston was about a 30-mile drive from D.C. proper. But I found them in a phone book. And it was just a group that would get together once a month and have like a coffee, coffee and donuts gathering. And then they, uh, and a kind of a business meeting because they would do events. And then the Gay Pride event in D.C. was going to have booths for different groups. 
and this was the gay pride where I first heard Holly Near singing and the Reston gay rap group decided we wanted to have a booth and I, <laughs> I got this brilliant idea to do a photo booth and we created two big wooden painted sets of figures male superheroes with their arms around each other and female superheroes with their arms around each other and we cut the heads out so you could put your head in and have your Batman and Robin taken pictures taken together or Wonder Woman and her sidekick taken together and we took a uh, Polaroid camera and for a dollar you could get your picture taken. Stupid me! I didn't realize this was would have been about 1978 I guess. Very few people wanted to have their picture taken at Gay Pride <laughs> in a cutout that said, hey, I'm a gay, I'm a member of a gay couple. We lost buckets of money. Uh-huh. I love but, that idea. Yeah, it would work great I today. Like, We'd have, yeah, no, we could do it today. <laughs> but what came for me out of that was hearing uh, Holly Near sing and, and discovering the whole women's music you know, genre and also getting in touch with the D.C. Women's Center, which was in name and open to all women, but especially run primarily by lesbians. And that, the D.C. area um, Women's Center put on dances, all kinds of events where you could meet that weren't necessarily happening in bars. The D.C. area Feminist Chorus grew out of that, which, and again, the Women's Center and the Feminist Chorus, you didn't have to be a lesbian to be a part of it, but it helped, you know, (laughs) there was nobody checking the card at the door. And but you knew if you went there, then there were going to yes, be lesbian-identified You were going to be welcomed, and it was a good place to meet people. And many of those people are still my good friends today, you know, many years later and many cities later. So the women's centers in a lot of cities became crucial for creating gathering spaces that uh, many times would be either it would either be a, a woman's group on a campus or a, a local woman's center who would be sponsoring me to come and do a musical performance something like that those were the people who were putting together productions to support lesbian performance mostly singers but again comics like Robin Tyler and then a very young Kate Clinton starting out, and then dances and gatherings. A lot of the women's centers had their own spaces. I also met, as I talked about on one of the Queer Mountain events, I met the women who were starting the Lesbian History Archives in New York City. They would put on events, greater New York area. and So it turned out to be a lot of homegrown women. A lot of them were 501c3, you know, corporate and nonprofit corporations that had been developed to create spaces as alternatives to the bars. I'll never forget the first lesbian bar I went to was in uh, Capitol Hill near the Marine Barracks. And I finally got up my nerve to go and these incredibly tall women kept coming in and they were just so statuesque and dressed to the nines with, you know, really tall heels and because at that time I had no idea what a drag queen was and I was seeing these women and they were the drag queen it was also a drag bar which I found out later but uh, it's great to have that space for everybody right right and uh, remember what it was called oh I love the names that's why yeah I know I'll have to get back okay because it may still actually be there oh yeah but again like you say a lot of those bars have gone out of business and I'm I think sometimes that may be a good sign the fact that 
there is enough variety, there are enough safe places or places that seem safe for people who are different that you don't have to have your own. Because I think a lot of them started because of the, the fearfulness of being yourself anywhere else. And I think that has eased some. I mean, that's, you know, we've uh, talked about this at Queer Mountain and on other podcast episodes about, you know, what does that mean? Because a lot of people do argue that, hey, we don't need lesbian bars and gay bars because everyone's cool now. And then other people are like, well, not everybody's cool. I mean, look at the president. Look at, you know, what's happening with the Supreme Court right now. We might not be in that space, so maybe we still need these spaces. And I don't have the answer. I mean, I think it depends on where you live and, you know, your personal situation and and what you want. Because, yes, okay, I can go with my girlfriend to any bar, not any bar, but most bars that we go to, we can hold hands Mm -hmm. or be together and that's fine. But if I were single and going to meet somebody would I go to that same bar to do that or if I was looking for certain activities could I do that in the same way I could in a lesbian bar I don't know yeah so it's it's important to you know spaces are always going to be redefined and they're always going to shift and change and you know it is important to keep that discussion going like I said I don't have the answer (laughs) just like there was a second wave of feminism in the 70s and 80s that's not saying that there's not going to need to be a third wave or a fourth wave of feminism and, and gay rights. And we do know that history has a tendency, the pendulum, to swing both ways. But hopefully each time it swings, it comes back not quite as far. But it's true. And when you, we talk about this administration and, and what's happened with immigration and things like that, it's like, who's next? Yeah. And it's odd, but... Sometimes it it seems a shame in some ways, but it it seems like when things what is it's cornball as it sounds when tough going gets tough the tough get going. Sometimes it takes that that pushback from the right for the left for the those interested in freedom and freedom of choice and freedom to be who you want to be to push back the other way. When you were like in Pride in the late seventies early eighties. And you were imagining where you'd be at 68 and where you'd be in 2019. Is this how you thought the world was going to look? It's a very loaded question. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of <laughs> even if I thought that far ahead. You're giving me more credit than I deserve. I think we, many of us felt like the wave, we were in the wave of change. I, looking back now, I think the 80s, the uh, some the historians will see the 80s and the whole Wall Street thing and, and as being critical to tamping down that wave of freedom. Much like when you go back and read your history about the 30s and, and the socialism, the wave of socialism that started in the 30s and, and big money and big oil, and you know, kind of cut it off at the knees. I don't know if you saw that Jane Fonda had decided to get back political. She got herself mm-hmm. arrested. She's going to get arrested every Friday in D.C. for climate change. I think I think there was an optimism that was perhaps unfounded, a little naive, because I really didn't see... I can remember saying at one point, oh, Richard Nixon will never be president. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not a good prognosticator, obviously. <laughs> but it's, it's a shock to see... Well, it's hard because I think we also surround ourselves with, for the most part, except maybe our family, like like like-minded people. So Mm -hmm. you can, you know, end up, and I know it's not my term, but you end up in a bubble of uh, like-minded speak and thought. So you can't believe that anybody else is really thinking these things or doing these things. 
and there's it's still out there and it's still happening so yeah if you were you know in this bubble at that time you're like well no one i know voted for nixon so how could he win but there's other people out beyond that bubble and then once that bubble bursts a little bit it's sometimes it's just like wow okay and that's why you know with the whole facebook culture now and we talked about this in our last episode there's a lot of if i don't like the way you think i'm gonna block you i don't want to see it like i have some cousins who that one particular group and i'm not saying it's because they're from staten island but they are from staten island they're 100 percent trump supporters and they're they're my family and i love them and i grew up with them and I'm never going to block them. And I think it's important for me to see what they're thinking and how they're feeling and how they view the things that I am like, it is so clearly wrong that this is happening. And they don't see it that way all the time because whatever he says is right. And obviously he's president for a reason, you know, according to them. And so I think you need that perspective. But a lot of people would be like, I don't care if it's family or not, cut them off. And then you don't even have that presented in your Facebook feed, much less your life. Absolutely, yeah. We, we get in an echo chamber of just hearing each other's thoughts. My mother voted for Trump, but the, one of the last times we were together, we were driving, and she said, you know, she said, I think that was a mistake. Oh. She said, I think we ought to have a woman president. And I'm driving and trying not to drive off the road while she's making this pronouncement. At 94, she Yeah, like... it's, it's uh, because, you know, I, women wouldn't be sending, sending people out to get killed in wars and, and women are just think things through better and I, I really think it's time this has just gotten too too crazy so I mean here she is this 94 year old woman who has had a change of heart and one thing now she watches more Turner classic movies than she does Fox News which Great. I think that is a <laughs> propaganda does its job and then when people can get away from the propaganda get out of the echo chamber and just look at the world I, I maybe it's naively optimistic but i do believe that most americans do care about each other don't wish each other ill now maybe that's naive but well you said americans here yeah but even even just people i i hope so i (laughs) honest to god i i hope so i feel i feel i don't want to get too political on things but i feel like a lot of people um i've said this before i think number one People have Stockholm Syndrome with Trump. They want to identify with their captors, which are rich, white, straight men. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think people want to feel better about themselves. And a lot of people think in order to do so, and we see this with comedy too, that instead of punching up, you punch down. So the only way you're going to feel better than somebody or better about yourself is feeling better than somebody else. And how do you feel better than somebody else? You're an American and they're not. And therefore they're not as valuable as you to you. And it's bullshit and it's stupid. But it's that psychology that needs to change. Like same with comedy. Like you can make fun of things. You don't have to punch down. You don't have to make the audience feel uncomfortable. And some people you don't have to beat yourself up on stage. Like sometimes it's they're like, why wasn't that funny? Those are funny jokes. And it's like because you were being mean to yourself and everyone just felt bad for you. Yeah. Yeah, I... I guess the the thing that you see, though, when you see little children playing together, there's a a great deal of camaraderie, acceptance. We kind of have to train ourselves into, I think, that us against them or me against them mentality and mindset. And and it happens easy. It's easy to get trained into that. But I, like I said, it, it, it may be my own naive optimism or just how I view the world, a glass half full person. Mm-hmm that I think given all things being equal, given the chance to, and this is where I think social media and the internet, of course I'm an IT person too, as well as a performer, 
I think is going to wind up being more valuable than hurtful because once you get to know someone else, it's a lot harder to be mean to them, I think. It's much easier to be mean to a group of people or something that you think is a facet of a group of people when you haven't met anyone, even virtually. Absolutely. So. And I hope that people are open to that. Yeah. You know, I hope they're not just blocking and shutting people off. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Judy. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> yeah, let, can you let the folks know how to find you and interact with you on, on <laughs> well, Facebook yeah, and social uh, media? And I'm I just use my name everywhere. I'm I'm you know Judy Reagan. I'm on I'm on the Facebook. I'm on the Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Twitter. I love Twitter. Uh, it's funny, people say Facebook is the people you went to school with. Twitter is the people you wish you'd gone to school with. <laughs> so I follow lots of people on Twitter, but you can just search my name and you'll find me. Um, the improv group I work with is Foxhole, and we've got a Facebook page coming. Um, but we perform around New Orleans. I perform around New Orleans and just having a generally good time. Yeah. <laughs> Look for me when you see people having a good time. I'll be there. Just be like, Judy? Yep. Judy? <laughs> yeah, just yell my name and I'll, I'll be there. Amanda, thank you so much. And, and let me tell you, too, how valuable I think your podcast, your work with Queer Mountain are, the times that I've spoken at, at that especially. I've had people come up to me, younger lesbians, lesbian and gay, LGBTQ folks, just talk about how important they see, they feel when they can hear these stories from other people. And yeah. that's, that's great. And you're a big part of that. Oh, and I'm... your comedy's hilarious. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm absolutely happy to do it and hope we get to keep on doing it. I feel like I should applaud. Can I yeah. <laughs> applaud us on out. Yeah. Die.
guest Judy Reagan for sharing her world with you. Special thank you to Jess O'Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help producing and editing the show. You can find the Queer Storytelling Show Greetings from Queer Mountain live in New Orleans, Austin, Oakland, New York City, and now Baton Rouge. Also check us out on social media near and queer to my heart at Instagram and Facebook and queer to my heart at Twitter. Send us some love. Thank y'all. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 